Today's story, Medium Secure, is set in a psychiatric hospital for people who have committed criminal offences. I've worked in mental health services for most of my life, and although there is much pain and sorrow, there is also the prospect of recovery, rehabilitation and hope. Medium Secure I'm 53 years old. I'm originally from Dublin, and I'm here because I pushed a stranger under a tube train at Wood Green Station when I was having a psychotic episode. That was 20 years ago now, but I've been slow to accept that I have an illness, and there are risks attached to my being released. I've done a lot of courses and had a lot of medication. The best thing has been the psychology, though. I found it useful to look for meaning in my madness. This has helped me to cope with what I did, which was a terrible thing. My anger was really directed at my family, but it was distorted by my psychosis and projected onto a stranger. I was right to be angry, but I was wrong to want to kill someone for it. I'm on a maintenance dose of antipsychotic medication now. I used to have a depot, that is, an injection, every fortnight, into the buttocks. It made me feel very sedated and I dribbled a lot. So over time they reduced the dose, as my insight improved, and now I take oral medication. I couldn't bear the injection. Not just because of the dose and the pain of the needle, but because of the humiliation. My psychiatrist says that future tribunals may think the risk is too high with me being on oral meds, but it's a chance I have to take. This is an eight-bed, medium-secure unit. All the rooms are en suite, which is nice, and we have these lovely ligature-free showers, basins and toilets. That means there's no point from which you can hang yourself. There's no toilet seat as such, so your bum has to acclimatise to the hard, cold surface, but you get used to it in the end. There's hot water most of the time, and they do clean the ward every day. Same cleaner all the time I've been here, and she works unbelievably hard. Every now and then we get a patient who likes blocking toilets or smearing shit on the walls, or if we're really unlucky, blood. Then the poor cleaner is at it until the place is spick and span again. She doesn't say much, but she probably knows more about the patients than the clinical staff. The nursing station has good sight lines along the ward, and there's even CCTV in there for the blind spots. That's also why we've got these fisheye mirrors all over the place. It didn't stop Malcolm Matthews from stabbing Tony Olatunji in the neck with a pen two years ago, and then stamping on his head until he died. That was horrible. We were all in shock, and blamed ourselves as much as the nurses for letting it happen. We really liked Tony, and now he's gone. Malcolm went off to Broadmoor, and we hope he's never coming back. Anyway, the nursing station is where the nurses and the healthcare assistants spend most of their time typing on the computers and filling in forms, answering the phone and generally ignoring us. It's not safe, but we don't blame them, because they've got all these targets to hit and quality improvement programmes to implement. It means they can be quite slow to respond in a crisis. And it's always the recent admissions who cause the most trouble. So there's three of us. We like to call ourselves the Rapid Response Committee. And we make sure we're on the scene first now, whenever someone calls out or an alarm is pulled or we notice someone getting really wound up. No one takes ward safety more seriously than the patients. The ward manager's called Sheila. Sheila is a decent person, but she's always fretting about something or other. I tell her she should investigate the possibilities of mindfulness, but she says she hasn't got the time. Occasionally, we have a decent chat over a cup of tea and she tells me about her life. 
She's a bit unhappy in her marriage, and her kids run wild. That's modern life, I suppose. It's probably too late for me to have any kind of normal family of my own, but I am able to empathise, which is quite important when you're dealing with nurses who can be very vulnerable and volatile. The occupational therapy, or OT room, is where we do art and music sessions and have the odd discussion group. There's a timetable of activities on the patient notice board, but about a quarter of them get cancelled because of staffing problems. There is a minimum number of staff on the ward at any one time, but because of security issues, like keeping certain patients under one-to-one observations, it often means that staff can't be freed up to do the group work. The OT does her best. She's from Australia, and her name is Skye. She puts a lot into the activities, but her time is divided between our ward and another one in the hospital. She leads this really excellent group called Storytelling, which sounds a bit childish, but it's actually about turning your life, all the good things as well as the bad, into a narrative so that you can better reflect on it and think about the positives. In the dining area, the tables and chairs are unbelievably heavy. That's to stop them from being picked up and thrown. Meals are delivered through the hatch from the kitchen, and we're not allowed in the kitchen because they've got knives and whatnot that could easily be used as weapons. Six months ago, on another ward, there was an open cooking session and the kitchen was left unlocked, so the staff and patients could all prepare a meal together. Unfortunately, Brendan O'Donoghue, my fellow countryman, stabbed one of the healthcare assistants in the heart because he wasn't given a large enough chunk of butter for the dish he was making. As a consequence, the kitchens are never to be opened up to patients again. Thanks, Brendan. The good news, however, is that Marcia, the HCA, has made a good recovery and even wants to come back to work. And that's what's so weird. On the one hand, we feel a great deal of resentment at having our liberty so restricted. But on the other hand, there are people who really give a damn about us and who put up with an unbelievable amount of crap from patients. It hurts, really it hurts, when some fool is violent to members of staff when they're just trying to do their job. And it makes it so much harder to persuade the responsible clinician, that's another fancy title for the consultant, that you are somehow different, that you can be trusted. You've got to prove yourself beyond your own past actions and past the recent actions of idiots. The de-escalation suite is behind locked doors at the far end of the ward. There's a de-escalation room for naughty mad boys and there's a seclusion room for really naughty mad boys. I was in there once, but only once. It wasn't long after I was transferred here about five years ago. I got into an argument with another patient and I went to punch him in the face. Unfortunately, he ducked and I hit one of the nurses instead and broke her glasses. So they jumped on me and sat on me and injected me with something called acuphase, which is a rapid-acting tranquilizer, and they put me in the seclusion room. There's nothing in there except a mattress on the floor and a toilet. They talk to you through the intercom and control the lighting and heating from outside. They review your level of arousal and hostility every few hours, and you can only come out once the doctor agrees it's safe. No one wants to go into the seclusion room, but sometimes people just can't help themselves. At least you get some time alone to think. I was in for three days because I couldn't deal with my own anger, and I really wanted to get at the other patient that I'd been arguing with. Often it's unfair. Often I think that the risk just isn't high enough for someone to go in seclusion, but they have their rules, and if they start to feel scared, then that's not good for us. So perhaps it's better to get the patient away from the ward. Occasionally, they just use the de-escalation room to try and talk someone down. The door's not locked, so the patient can get up and leave if they want to, but if they do, they're probably heading for seclusion. Usually, they bypass de-escalation and opt for the slammer because it's safer. I'm not going back there. 
being in seclusion can look really bad to the Ministry of Justice. The morning ritual. Pound that street to the tube station. Grab a coffee at the Magic Bean. Slurp your way down the escalator. Identify yourself as medium desperate but happy to stand on the right. The white rabbits sprint past on the left, knocking against you, occasionally stumbling. They're late, they're late for very important meetings, deals, interviews, inductions, auditions. Early birds out asset stripping. Eager beavers making impressions. Struggling swimmers not waving but drowning. Assassins heading for their grassy knolls. We're keeping it all in check here on the right. We have coffees and mobile phones. We're texting ahead. We're preparing our excuses. It takes an age to descend to platform level. Tons of human flesh delivered step by moving step to the yellow tiles of the underground concourse. A few stragglers are heading north. What can possibly await them there? Revolutionaries, visionaries, relaxed in the calm assurance of superiority. They are travelling against the tide on nearly empty carriages. How we envy them, how we yearn to be with them. But we are southbound slaves. We are drawn to the heart of the city. It compels us. We have no choice. The magnetic field is far too strong for resistance. We're just little iron filings clinging to the metal. The familiar warnings are uttered. Please move down the platform. There's plenty of space at the far end. Is there? I'm not sure I can see it. I shuffle along, but as always I park myself halfway down. In Japan, they stand in line, one behind the other, in clear lanes marked out on the platform. Here we huddle in amorphous blobs, somewhere near where we think the doors will open. In Japan, the trains stop in exactly the same place, aligned to the millimetre. Here you never quite know, and we sigh with disappointment if our calculation is out, and instead of being plumb in front of the opening doors, we're awkwardly off to the side. Then we have to figure out if it's better to stay where we are or to adjust ourselves. It could be the difference between the next train or the third or fourth train. The productivity of chance, five minutes either way, and who knows what opportunities are missed, what great ambitions shattered. At least today there is no force majeure, no signal failure, no passenger action, no industrial dispute or power outage. A woman sneezes in my ear but apologises, bless her. A mother catches her child's hand so tightly he cries out. A backpacker, caught oblivious in the morning maelstrom, is required to unsling his worldly goods, lest furious commuters unleash their ire. We jostle and shift. We assert ourselves in our own imaginary exclusion zones, the wonder of anonymous forced intimacy. I can smell the breath of a thousand mouths, from sweet innocence to abject decay. It can't still be two minutes to the next train. The digital indicator has its own arbitrary and malicious sense of time. And then I feel his presence. Seconds before he puts his hand on my shoulder, I know he is there. I know he is there, and I know he is my nemesis, my very own angel of death. His invisible shadow falls on me, and an unholy dread whispers to my heart, this is absolute fear. I have never understood fear before this moment. And yes, here it is. Here is his hand, firmly on my shoulder, announcing himself formally. Somehow he creates a space for us with his menace. I don't want to turn around. It would be better, far better, if I don't turn around. But I turn around. He is not the devil. He is, if anything, pathetic with dishevelment. Pathetic, but nonetheless lethal. So little time left, but time enough to observe him, to scrutinise the hatred of his madness tip to toe. No fangs, no horns, no green saliva, but yellow teeth, ugly stubble, greasy, unkempt hair, eyes aflame with terror, I suppose, wounded, livid, rabid, he is caged within his nightmare. He does not see me, or any of us clearly, I am sure of it. I am merely a distortion to him. The stained shirt, the worn trousers, the battered shoes, I acknowledge them briefly, but I am on my way down now, down and out. 
He pushes me hard in the chest and I am sent reeling. I hear the train. I sense the bright headlight. I hear the screams and gasps of the crowd as I fall backwards onto the rail. And as I fall, to be crushed and electrocuted, to be broken and erased, my little life echoes around me. All the characters appear at once, and he is one of them, the last, bidding me farewell. Once a week we have a community meeting. A different patient chairs the meeting each week. Their job is to try and encourage everyone to attend. Sometimes they get told to piss off, and sometimes they get told that nothing ever changes, no matter how much we complain. When it's my turn, I say that you've got to use the democratic process, even if you feel it's compromised. My technique is to pester them gently all week so that finally they give in and agree to attend. Today I'm chairing the community meeting again. I welcome everyone to the meeting and remind people that a blank sheet has been pinned to the patient notice board for people to write down agenda items. Only patients who've given some real thought to things write on the agenda sheet. So I ask around the room and we have a good showing today of six out of eight patients and I scribble down the inevitable items about food quality and blocked toilets. There is a more serious issue about leave being cancelled because of staff shortages. We've drawn up a petition and we want everyone to sign, addressed to the CEO of the Trust, demanding an increase in the staffing establishment for the ward. Everyone thinks this is a good idea and is willing to sign, although we all feel it's got a snowball's chance in hell of having any effect. Still, it's a symbol of our demand for agency, so we all sign and will now send a covering letter to the CEO. I like this kind of strategy because it draws out the senior managers and makes them respond as if they give a damn, which obviously they don't. But if you can't change the world, at least you can humiliate the lying bastards who can. With a quick AOB, we wrap up the meeting. That means I can get prepared for my ward round. Most staff don't attend the community meeting. Too busy is the official line. But we do have Skye, and she's worth more than all the others put together, except for Sheila, the ward manager, who I like a lot, despite her high levels of anxiety. When you first have a ward round, you realise it's a pretty intimidating process, and as a verified nutjob, you are not in a strong position to make any demands or argue the toss about things. However, after a while you get acclimatised, and you begin to appreciate that there are rules, and there is subtle nuance and a whole micro-politics about the ward round. You watch and you listen and you play meek, and then you can slowly start a negotiation with the consultant. What you have to remember at all costs is that they need to feel that they are absolutely and completely in charge, so you must feed them that sense of total authority, and an old trick that rarely fails, try to suggest that any idea you've had was actually their idea. Dr Shelton is the consultant psychiatrist. She's 40 years old, married with two kids, and she lives in a nice suburban semi with her husband, who is a quantity surveyor. She's living the middle-class dream, and I don't want to do anything to upset her. Except, of course, that being a consultant is not a cakewalk, and she bears the scars of misjudged positive risk-taking from her early reckless years. She's learned not to trust human nature, and she's no longer certain that all human beings have a soul or should be treated with kindness and respect. Fair enough, when you consider the whole menagerie of homicidal maniacs that have come before her, pleading their innocence or blaming it all on God and the devil. But I have been dwelling on this ward round in particular and I have held myself in check, not trying to find out beforehand if she has applied to the Ministry for unescorted leave. We're all restricted patients on this ward, which means that we can't have leave either escorted or unescorted without the written authorisation of the Ministry. The pathway to a different life comes flickering into view. Could it really be that I am in the end game? That a great big second chance in glaring neon is flashing above my head? I pushed a man under a train. 
Could it be that I do have another go at surviving out there in the big bad world? Well, I'm going to have to get through lunch first. Lunch can be a bit of a flashpoint because it brings all the men together and when there's a slight shortage of, say, tomato ketchup, that can lead to outbursts. I guess it's because of the nature of the place that something as seemingly trivial as ketchup becomes a matter of such desperate assertion of rights. You can see all the hidden rules of the group, all the hierarchy and deference at mealtimes. This is where the vulnerable are exposed. Meals are served through the hatch, but what exactly goes on each plate? That is, the size of the portions, the choice of fillet or burger or whatever, all of it is filtered through layers of strength and influence that determine the outcomes. At least, that's what people feel, especially the people most likely to be discriminated against. As far as the staff are concerned, mealtimes are all hands to the pump. There's a direct route from the plate to the seclusion room. Not that there isn't a menu from which we can choose, but the temptation when you're in here is always to go for the comfort food option. This is why so many of the guys are overweight and developing diabetes. That and the extraordinary amounts of bulk-inducing antipsychotic corrosive that is thundering through their bloodstreams. After my waist expanded and contracted over many years, I learned to embrace the salad and keep the chips to a minimum. But healthy eating is directly proportional to the amount of hope that each man has. It's lentil soup, followed by a chicken salad today, and I brace myself for a meal of the bland following the bland. It's a good calm atmosphere with no one getting too leery, and although someone knocks over someone else's orange squash, it doesn't lead to carnage on the dance floor, as might have happened at other times in the glorious past of this establishment. I don't want to engage in conversation, though, and I'm happy enough when it's noticed that I'm being an antisocial sod. I explain that I'm ruminating on the ward round to come and the prospect of unescorted leave or not. The men understand what that's all about and they leave me to my own devices as I watch the drops of rain racing each other down the dirty window pane. It's always a race to the bottom with gravity. A raindrop spattered into a million molecules of water, each one hurtling its way through the world since its formation in the cooling atmosphere of the earth eons ago. There are no restrictions on your movements, little orbs of water. The victim liaison officer. That's right. And so, like, what can you do? I act as a kind of go-between. I mediate, as it were, between you and the services. I put your point of view to them. But have you got any power? Not as such, but your views are important. My views? They sent him to hospital, not to prison. It feels as if they somehow rewarded him, I don't know. Gave him a life that was much more comfortable. It can often feel that way, but he was unwell. So fine, he should be treated. I don't have a problem with that. But surely when he's better, instead of being released, he should go to prison. It's just the way the system works. Well, I think it's completely wrong. No, I fully respect that. So what can I do? I shall write to the Ministry and to the Tribunal to let them know that you do not think he should have unescorted leave or be conditionally discharged. I mean, what if I meet him? I was in court. I would remember him. We can ask for an exclusion zone. I was very close to my brother. I'm sure you were. It's just not right. These situations, they always evoke powerful emotions, terrible memories. A life. A man's life. It was snuffed out. Stolen, of course. And now he is given a second chance? Yes. But my brother, he doesn't get a second chance, does he? I'm sorry. It's all wrong. I will let them know the strength of your feeling, I promise. It's just tokenistic, though, isn't it? I wouldn't say that. How can anyone think it's safe to let him go? Well, that decision hasn't been taken yet, but it's only a matter of time, isn't it? Even if he is conditionally discharged, those conditions are very strict. 
Yes, but for there to be any consequences, he'd have to do the same thing again, wouldn't he? No, he could be recalled very quickly, for example, if he stopped his medication. But they all do it again in the end, don't they? No, the supervision is very effective. How can they risk it happening again? They keep a very close watch. But even if there's the slightest chance, how can they gamble with people's lives like that? What had my brother done to deserve what happened? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing, of course. It's so wrong. I am ushered into my ward round, only ten minutes late, which is pretty good for Dr. Shelton, who has been known to keep us waiting on tenterhooks for up to an hour, as she overruns with her deliberations. Who do we have in the throne room today, all seated round the Queen? We have my good friend Dr. Heron, the ward psychologist, who's been helping me come to terms with my index offence, and to process my early childhood memories, and bottomless reservoirs of anger and disappointment. We have, it is alleged, completed our risk-focused psychological work, but I still have an hour's session every second month as a kind of maintenance dose of talking therapy. Next to Dr. Heron is Skye, our bewitching OT, and Sheila, our depressed ward manager. At the centre is Dr. Shelton, with her medical students on either side of her. They gaze at Dr. Shelton like cherubs swooning over the Madonna, in the religious certainty that she utters only the truth. Over in the corner, seated at the computer, is Dr. Akintola, the junior medic, who is entering notes onto the electronic patient record. He has no opinions, he just types. But bless her, because for all my cynical observations, Dr. Shelton kicks off by saying it's been good news, and the Ministry has granted her request for me to have unescorted leave. She had actually applied several months ago, but she didn't want to get my hopes up until there was a positive response. I could leap up and embrace her, and then hard on the heels of elation... Anxiety? I've been caught in the updraft of some powerful storm and I'm spinning in space, wrong-footed, off-balance. I, the killer, shall walk free on the streets of London town and I cannot help myself. I begin to weep. These are not the tears of self-pity. I have shed plenty of those and that well is dry. Nor are they the tears of fear or unhappiness for I have longed for this moment. And even though there is dread, even though there is reluctance, I know that if I am to live at all, then I will have to pass this test. Unescorted leave is the step before conditional discharge. Conditional because as a restricted patient, if I am ever discharged, I will have to abide by certain conditions, and if I break those conditions, I can be whisked back in straight away. So these are the tears of overwhelming hope, of emergence, of rebirth, I have been outside, of course, with the nurses on escorted leave. We have walked down the steps together into the satanic pit of the underground, and we have boarded trains and sat sweating, palms clammy with panic and breathlessness. And in the psychology sessions, I have talked through the moment. I have looked back upon myself as I push an innocent man under the rails. I have imagined his pain and horror as he is crushed and the life is wrenched from him in a bloody tangle of sparks and steel. But there is no preparation for the reality of confronting yourself absolutely. Up until now, there was just a process and I was working through that process and even though it had an end in sight, the end was only approached with such a dragging slowness that it never really seemed it could arrive and present itself to me like this. The mirror where the one thing finally to overcome is myself. Is it just a den of dangerous madmen? Should we all be locked up forever and the key thrown deep into the bosom of Father Thames to keep you safe in your beds?
But you are never safe in your beds, are you? And we are just one more collective of the damage done. We may have no worth, we may have no love, but we exist, clawing our way towards a better sense of ourselves. The system, the machine, is of course moronic and rigid and vengeful and hard, but it can also be something else. Something to wonder at, something to cause an intake of breath. That here, in the end, and after long anguish and the final dimming of rage, there is trust. It may be in short supply, but I have seized my flake of it, and tomorrow I shall walk into the light alone for the first time in twenty years. Thank you for listening. Please share.